Are You Just Watching is supported by our dearly loved listeners. Special thanks to Tim Martin, Craig Hardy, and Richard French for their monthly support. To help support Are You Just Watching, please go to patreon.com slash are you just watching. Are you just watching episode 60, The Martian, part two? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And we're back again talking about The Martian. It obviously is a longer movie. And since we can really delve in depth into the DVD, we have the chance to put together a little bit more content than when we watch a movie in the theater. Have I mentioned before how hard it is to take notes in the dark? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think I mentioned uh, to you, I don't think we got it in the podcast. I actually bought a special pen intended for pilots Mm. that has a light mounted Mm -hmm. (laughs) around the, uh, the ink part. Yeah, I've used one of those pens and then I broke it. I used it. I ended up using it for two movies and then I broke it. I had to. I had to cover the light with uh, fingernail polish oh. to, get, to get it so it wouldn't bother everybody else around me. <laughs> it's difficult, anyway. Yep. But for the Martian, we didn't have to worry about that because we got to watch it at our leisure, and we got to watch it over and over and over and over with the again. laptop and in front of on... me on the coffee table. Yeah, and we could turn on subtitles, which is wonderful. That's very helpful. <laughs> You could pause the movie and write down the quote. The theater Um, gets irritated when I try to go back 30 seconds. I don't know why. (laughs) Oh, so we'd like to throw in these DVD productions. Um, But yes, we love The Martian and there was a lot more to talk about. We just even barely touched the tip of the iceberg in our last episode because we spent so much time talking about what we liked about the movie and the science and the agendas. And we didn't, I think we had maybe three quotes in the last episode. Yeah. Um, so this time we're going to dive a little bit more in depth into um, aspects of the movie that we want to talk about. And the first one, obviously, is the representation of how people interrelate with each other. It's important when you're talking about a guy that's by himself on a planet. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't think he'd play that big a role uh, interpersonal relationships about a, in a movie about a guy stranded as the only human being on the planet. Right. <laughs> But I was very happy, actually, with how both the book and the movie presented it. And I think the movie um, – now, there was a – we mentioned in the last episode that there was a longer stretch between my reading the book and watching the movie than mm-hmm. there was between yours. Right. But I'm fairly certain that uh, the movie actually paid more attention to the relationships between uh, the – astronauts and their families at home i don't remember that being in the book as much i think it was just mentioned in passing i don't think they actually visualized it like they did in the movie which was which made it more impactful to be able to actually see them talking to their families yeah and uh it family of course is just one of the uh, uh the interper- interpersonal relationships that uh, appears uh, in the movie, and they they make it as important as it is, and I I really appreciated that. Yeah, especially with families being so much under assault in our culture these days, it's really mm-hmm. nice to see um, a movie that portrays the importance of family and those yeah. relationships. And you know, uh, um, the scene where the astronauts of the Hermes, uh, the team on the Hermes, is uh, they're literally orbiting Earth. They're mm-hmm. um, they're going all around. What are Earth they? A hundred a hundred miles above the surface of the planet, and uh, they've made the determination that they are going to go back for Mark Watney. And uh, they accelerated they, instead of braked. So uh, there's a, in the movie there's a scene where it shows them skyping with their families, and mm-hmm. uh, a couple of the astronauts, uh, Vogel and uh, Martinez. 
Is it Martinez? Oh, yeah. Uh, Martinez. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, They showed them talking to their families and they showed that, yes, I really want to be there with you. Mm-hmm. But this is something that we have to do. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, it comes back to uh, to our uh, servicemen and women who have to do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, deployments, uh, particularly here in the the Norfolk, uh, Virginia Beach area, are beyond commonplace. They're expected, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, it's something that our community deals with constantly. We just had a gentleman in our church come back from seven or eight months in uh, the Far East, mm. and he was somebody in his sixties, and not even military. He was uh, he was a technician in support. So, uh, you know, I, I I really liked how the the movie in particular portrayed that and uh, gave duty due attention, but uh, still showed that the astronauts cared about their families and uh mm-hmm. you know that they and, you know and it wasn't it wasn't even just the astronauts uh one of the the um points that that i wanted to bring up was um, about mark watney and his family um because when he realizes when it when the when the mission to resupply him fails mm-hmm. um he sends a a message to commander lewis to check in on his parents and i think that that's a um very important that um, we're told in scripture to honor our father and mother and to um, put a great deal of importance on that relationship. And, and I thought it was very telling that when he realizes that there's a chance he's not going to survive, a very good chance he's not going to survive, and he has that means of communication open, that he asks his commander, please check in. He puts somebody in in charge of checking on his parents. It's almost like Jesus, um, when he puts his apostle, said that, you know, here, take care of my mother for me. Yeah. And and I think that 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 was a a very good point um, in the movie, just to to indicate what you're saying, the importance of family, the importance of those relationships. That it wasn't just that he wanted to make sure they were okay, because it's he's going to die; he's not going to matter to him. But he wanted them to be assured that what he died for was important. Mm-hmm. And it touched uh, the father in me and the service member in me. Mm-hmm. The, the way they portrayed it, it was uh, perfect. Yeah, and, and you have to put this in perspective, too, from a time standpoint, because their their mission to and from Mars was already a couple of years, if not longer. I can't remember exactly how long they said it was. Yeah. But they, they the really intriguing thing about that is that they would travel out there for over a year and then spend, like, at most 30 days, and then they would travel back for over a year. And... That is just amazing that they spent all that time in transit just to do a 30-day mission on Mars. Yeah. and But what they did in going back for Mark Watney is they added 533 days to the mission that was already, Ooh. what, three, four years long. Mm-hmm. So that was adding another year, another year and a half, almost two years to their mission. Um, but that just puts it into perspective because they were adding another year, almost two years uh, to a mission that was already long. And, and they did it without hesitation. Without hesitation, right. Yep. In fact, they went against orders to do it. And that that definitely shows a, a love of camaraderie. Now, it's interesting that the movie opens with that camaraderie between Mark and Martinez. Yeah. And, it, um, <laughs> I, really, I really enjoyed their relationship. Uh, I liked it in the book. Mm-hmm. And but, what was uh, interesting about the difference between the movie and the book there is that in the movie, we start with him being marooned and we don't get that interplay with him at the crew yeah. until about a third or more into the book when they the first flashbacks. introduce the crew. Yep. Yeah. And that was the first time you see the crew in the book. They flash back and tell you how they're how they were interacting as a team and how he actually actually got left behind. But it isn't until you're way into the story that they give you that information. But in the movie, because you're dealing with the story in a linear fashion, um, they deal with it right up front. And so you get to see that right up front. It's really great. And that relationship is so it's something that the viewers can just latch on to because it, it it's so you know humorous and manly and uh, <laughs> friendly and uh you know um it's like a challenge between who can uh humorously deprecate the other one uh more mm-hmm. 
Um, and, look, and yet do it. You, and what's your job? Just telling if the Mav is still upright? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they and he actually found dirt on Mars. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's just it's fun. You had put in here uh, the scripture that you pulled up. Uh, one of them is uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Mm-hmm. And that really, you know, fits because it's like in the portrayal of their duties and what they were doing, they were a team and they each had a specialty. I think that's one of the things that I think I brought up in the last episode that is I thought was very important is they all had two specialties and they they that's how they knit together as a team because yeah. of those specialties, because they all provided necessary skills to their survival. Yeah, it's it's as a as a unit. Uh, mm-hmm. they were a complete unit, you know, the, a complete function, but each of them filled their individual responsibilities as well. Just like, uh, just like a, a church does, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, we, we in church, uh, in Presbyterianism in particular, uh, we hear all the time, um, uh, first Corinthians 12, uh, 20 through five. Um, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which... Our more presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body that the members may have the same care for one another because, mm-hmm. you know, they each fulfilled their roles exactly as uh, as they're intended. Right. And that's the way this teamwork plays out. Right. It's it's very interesting because um, one of the things that it's actually brought out as Mark is attempting to um, science his survival. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I dropped a word that's actually used in the, in the movie. Yeah, um, yeah. There are a few words we need to drop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he sciences his way out of his situation is that his specialty is um, botany and – uh, but he lacks – he knows other scientists, but he doesn't know them as well. And he actually uh, it ends up blowing himself up at one point because he had some chemistry wrong just slightly. Mm-hmm. And and I think – I can't remember what was in the movie, but I think it was in the book where he made the comment that um, the team member that was the chemist. Yeah. Uh, Vogel? Vogel. He, he made the comment that Vogel would not have made that mistake. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and so it's just very interesting that he knew he knew where everybody fit and that he was trying to kind of perform all the roles himself. But he knew where his specialties were and he honored the specialties of those who had the different specialties. In the book, they uh, they mentioned specifically that he forgot to account for the oxygen in his he was breathing. Yeah. exhales, mm-hmm. which uh, I thought was a nice touch. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't remember what they mentioned. How they did that in the book? I think it was pretty much the same way. Was it? it was, yeah, and that he had to put his suit on to do it again, which I thought was very interesting. That in in the movie where this is completely a bunny trail, we're talking about interpersonal relationships, but that whole section where he's making water um, is dealt with differently in the movie than it is in the book. In the book, he does it as one. Uh, interchange inside the hab he goes in and he burns off the hydrogen to make the water and he ends up creating an explosive environment inside the hab and has to abandon the hab and uh, trying to figure out how he can um, prevent a Hindenburg inside the yeah. hab and um, and because he had too much oxygen he ended up with too much oxygen in the in the air and oxygen is flammable and so he, when he realized he wasn't accounting for something and he realized that there where the missing water was, because he was like, I should have more water and I don't. Where is it? And when he did the the actual calculations out with the ke- chemical math and realized what well, he abandoned the hab as quickly as he could get out of it. And that was all in the book. And they didn't put that in the movie. In fact, in the movie, they made it look like that he was just constantly burning the hydrogen to create that moist environment. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that. 
that was quite as scientifically accurate as the way he did it in the book. So um, that he would have he just created all the water and then stored it and and brought it out to use as he needed it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I think that was probably just a creative decision. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it looked better. It looked better, right? Because he could create yeah. that little still in the middle of the, his field and and have that constant watering going on. Um, a little still. Yeah. Let's... Makes me think of mash. <laughs> That's kind of what it was. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was um, it, that that was a very interesting interplay because he he was not a chemist. And so he made mistakes when he tried. He's like, I he knew the basics of it. It's like everybody knows that water is H2O. So you have to have um, two hydrogens for every oxygen. But how do you actually put them together? I think the average non-chemist would not know how to do that. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, I, I did something in eighth grade science about it, but that's as close as I got. <laughs> so that was just another kind of a, a, a homage to how important each each of the um, various members of the crew were to the functioning of the crew because they each had their specialties. Mm-hmm. And as I brought up in our last episode, they actually uh, messed that up a little bit in the movie because they did have an EVA specialist and then the commander superseded his role yeah. and, and took over the EVA, which not saying that they weren't all trained in EVA, but when you have a specialist, you let the specialist do what the specialist does best. Mm-hmm. And that kind of bug- bugged me. It was a Star Trek moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but yeah the the definitely a, a good interplay of characters and in, in the crew and i'm assuming that that is kind of a uh a, a testament to how nasa does pick its crews because if you're going to put people together for long periods of time you're going to probably psychoanalyze them enough to know whether their personalities will mesh well in a situation when they're all each other has so uh, another place that we saw a uh, a great example of the importance of the different members of the team mm-hmm. was back on Earth. Everything from the director of NASA, who uh, you know constantly was thinking about the big picture mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know how it would all play out, and, and in particular, money. Right. Right. Um, and you know the public relations person. Um, <laughs> And uh, even uh, the steely-eyed missile man. Oh yeah, um, they really did a great job portraying how all that uh, works out. And for them, it was a very different situation. They're not—they're uh, not life or death for them. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they—they they could literally go home at the end of the night. They're dealing with the uh, the very real consequences of uh, their decisions of, on someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, so not only are they worried about what uh, what they're going to do about Mark Watney stranded on the planet, but they're worried about the future of the agency, the National Aeronautics and Space Agency, and how it plays to the public. That actually is a pretty significant portion of both the book and the movie. The politics, mm-hmm. the politics of, and right. economics of the rescue of Mark Watney. Well, let's let's um, actually play one of the very first quotes in the movie um, that has to deal with that. Surely we could spare a few hours. Not about the satellite time, Vince. We're a public domain organization. We need to be transparent on this. Okay. The second we point the satellites at the HAP, I broadcast pictures of Mark Watney's dead body to the world. Well, obviously, they've already had the fr- funeral for Mark Watney. They, they all assume that he's dead. Yep. And they, they were actually avoiding looking. And the reason they gave for uh, for avoiding looking is they didn't want to show everybody his dead body, that there would be this voyeurism involved with people looking at the, um, as we know, NASA is public domain, anything, any pictures they take instantly, well, they don't instantly, but they do eventually show up on the NASA website where you can look at them. Yeah, Vince uh, was making a point that Mm -hmm. they have all this resource at the site that was abandoned that they would be able to use. And and if they could just, you know, just get an inventory of it, uh, that would be great. But the the director was was making that point. Right. And and the thing is, and, and this is this is kind of where I depart from the movie, because I really honestly feel like they would not have allowed him to take those pictures. I really feel like that if this had been a real event where there was a concern, and I don't know that it was necessarily about the about showing a dead body, I I just don't think they would have wanted to know one way or the other. 
I think they would yeah. avoided looking because they knew if they took a picture, it, it's just like if they said in the movie, if they took a picture, it would be instantly available to anybody who wanted to look at it. And I, I don't think they would. I don't looked. think they could have avoided looking. Yeah, um, but I also but think at the same time, I don't think it would have been a problem because I don't think any of the uh, orbiters have their surveil the, any of the actual surveillance that we have. Around Mars, I don't think any of them would have the resolution to see a body on the surface. Well, and that's the thing is, is that if we were to send missions to Mars, we probably would in, would increase our level of orbiters. Right now, obviously, yeah, we don't true. have that ability. And this does take place in the it future. It does take place uh, in the future. But I don't think it ever establishes how far in the future <laughs> No, it, it doesn't. Um, but one of the things that I guess my whole point about this politics is – that I really honestly don't think that they would have publicized that he was alive. If they had even found out that he was alive, I think they would have found a way to cover it up. I think it would have been like the uh, the when we did the movie The 33, which is a real event. The 33 mm-hmm. um, miners that were buried alive in a cave-in in a silver mine – or no, excuse me, a gold mine in Chile. Yep. Um, the As soon as the cave-in occurred, remember what happened? The mining company closed the gates. They didn't want yeah. anybody getting off the property to inform the public that a, a cave-in had occurred. Yeah, and the public included wives and wives, sons families. and daughters. Right. And- <laughs> right. And to me, that is the natural response to a situation when you believe the people are not rescuable. And you don't want to face the public backlash of somebody saying, well, go get him doesn't matter what the cost is go get him and yeah and the the mining company basically washed their hands of the whole situation that's what happens in real life and i really feel like that if if we left one astronaut alive on mars i don't think that they, they i think they would attempt to bury it as much as they could because if it got out into the public then they would be left with the political nightmare of trying to explain to the public why he was going to die on mars because there's no way to get him yeah in the movie and the book uh they made it a point that uh any evidence that they saw would become public knowledge anyway so they they were making a point to say that they wouldn't be able to cover up the evidence. Right. So they were going to and I kind try of, to avoid anything that could provide the evidence. Right. And I kind of don't think that's the truth. I think that NASA could cover something up if they had to. You think so? I do believe they could. And Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with the, the whole open transparency Yeah, thing I there. don't know. I mean, it is true that they're a public domain organization, but that means that what they put online is in the public domain. It doesn't mean that every informa- every piece of information they gather is instantly publicly available. Yeah. And I and and so I think they could have covered it up just because it, they they claim, and we have to remember that this is an author's view of NASA. This is not actual NASA that is in, in mm-hmm. the book and then the movie. This is somebody's portrayal of what he he thinks how he thinks NASA operates. I would imagine NASA probably does um keep some information secret. I mean, I'm sure that they they would have they to. They would be able they would have to be able to. It just being a public domain organization doesn't mean that everything you do is instantly public domain. It means that what you publish is in the public domain. Yeah, and there, I do wonder. I wonder how there. close that was. Yeah. yeah. How are we going to handle the public? Legally, we have 24 hours to release these pictures. We release a statement with them. We don't want people working it out on their own. Yes, sir. But if my math is right, he's going to starve to death long before we can help him. So this is just a continuation of my my rant against um, them spending money on rescuing <laughs> Mark Watney. Um, how realistic is the political scenario in this movie? Because I'm of the opinion it it wouldn't have happened this way. They would have told the public, okay, yeah, he is. If they had to release the fact that he was alive, they would say he's alive now, but he's going to die. Period. There's really nothing we can do about it. He, we're we're too far away. He's going to run out of food before we get there. There's absolutely no way we can do anything about this. And so we've already had the funeral. Um, let's just pray for him and be done with it. You know, hmm. I I just I honestly I just the way we nitpick about finances and money, especially um, NASA, they 
they're hurting for finances. I mean, that's prob- probably why we actually haven't done a mission to Mars. I know that they had one in the works 10 years ago, I think. And it's been abandoned to do the unmanned missions because it's safer and uh, doesn't cost as much and doesn't take as much time. So we're always thinking about the bottom line at NASA, and I just I don't see that happening. Yeah, it's I I think uh, I I would like to disagree. Um, <laughs> you would like to, <laughs> uh, but I don't know that I can. <laughs> I, I would like to think that uh, you know that that they would come up with uh, with ideas like you know shooting supplies to them like mm-hmm. they were going to do. Um, and, uh, I, I was just looking back in the book and, and he did start out with, uh, enough to feed, um, seven people for 50 yeah, days. Yeah, it, it was a different algorithm in the book than it was in the movie. Um, they actually had, uh, in the book, the disaster that caused them to abort the mission happened seven days into the mission. And in the movie, it was like 20-something days. It's like 21 or something yeah. like that. So there was a difference there in how long they had been eating on the supplies in the movie than there was in the book. It still gave him a shortage. <laughs> and, of, of course, the Earth was not aware of the fact that he was growing potatoes, which helped extend his, his lifespan a little bit. But And the other thing they didn't mention in the movie that was in the book was his his statement that, he would not starve to death. You remember that he's actually left in his journal. He said, I have enough, um, I have enough medicine in the med kit to end my life. I am not going to starve to death. Yeah. That, that didn't uh, make an appearance in the movie. Which for, for good reason. I mean, that's something. (laughs) (laughs) Can't imagine why. (laughs) Um, Can you imagine if the movie ended that way? Now, all of these, these quotes that I'm playing um, are actually fairly almost in the same section of the movie where they were initially finding out that he is um, still alive. I actually found this quote to be very humorous. Three months. Three? You're going to say it's impossible, and then I'm going to make a speech about the blinding capabilities of the JPL team, and then you're going to do the math in your head and say something like the overtime alone will be a nightmare. The overtime alone will be a nightmare. Get started. I'll find you the money. Okay, so this, I'll find you the money... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, it's another reason why I I liked Bridges' portrayal of the uh, of the NASA uh, uh, director. Yeah, he'll find the money. He's just, he's going to turn over some rocks in Washington and just find some money under them. <clears throat> Excuse me, Mr. Trump. Can I go through your couch? <laughs> um. Uh. Yeah. Why don't you throw in a few unicorns while you're at it? Because I I just don't <laughs> see that happening. Um. Especially over time at, on a JPL team. Can you even fathom how much money we're talking about? <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Um. And for three and for mo- three months and then it's and three months they finish and then they have to do it again to resupply Hermes and so the overtime is killer on this. I. I mean, just yeah. saying. Oh, I'll find the money. Um. Yeah, no. That's again. I would like to think, <laughs> you know, that that uh, that it could happen. <laughs> uh, I'll suspend my disbelief. <laughs> well, and and that that's what makes the movie so good is that it's that drawing together of people to do the impossible, and it happens in the thirty three. It's not that I'm saying that it can't happen. I just I think that. Yeah. It, the, that is, to me, the most unrealistic scenario, given the way things work here in the United States, that we would blow that kind of money rescuing one man. I, I think that they would have re- found some way to console everybody and write him off. I don't know. It's I, You know, I think back to, uh, to JFK mm-hmm. and uh, his speech about going to the moon and uh, how it gave – the United States a, a clear cut goal, and you know, in less than a decade, mm-hmm. they did it. And that was um, a different America I, than we have now. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer here, but we are <laughs> not the same country that we were back when we sent uh, put a man on the moon. Definitely not. Yeah. Couple more quotes because I'm I'm enjoying these quotes. So what we either have a high chance of killing one person or low chance of killing six people. Um, 
How do we make that decision? Annie will go before the media this morning and inform them of NASA's decision to reroute the Hermes to Mars. Sounds like a smart move. Okay. I actually think the, the mutiny of the crew makes a great deal of sense. And if this whole scenario had worked up till this point, I think that the uh, the political decision to only risk one person's life instead of the whole crew made perfect sense. And the mutiny of the crew to then force their hand um, to send them back to Mars, uh, I think, makes a lot of sense. I. I yeah. I think if we'd gotten up to that point, I think if there there was any feasible way for them to turn around and go back and get him, they definitely would do it. Um, that yeah. is probably about the only thing in the whole movie from a political standpoint that I would <laughs> I, I I'm I could get behind because that's the way that's the way crews work. That's the way you know our military works. You know they they don't leave yeah. a man behind. That's that's not in their mentality. It's the governments that leave people behind, not the soldiers. It's a, a a very it's almost troopish mm-hmm. uh, when it appears in movies, but uh, it 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 felt right at home here, mm-hmm. um, particularly when uh, you know they made a uh, I think they even made a bigger deal in the movie than in the book about not about the impact of not telling the uh, the crew right. of Hermes right um, the fact that they didn't want them to uh, lose focus on their mission by knowing that Mark Watney was still alive. Um, I thought that was an interesting silence. And I think Mark Watney thought that was an interesting silence. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's how, that's exactly how he said it. Well, that's, yeah, I think it was a few more F words involved, but yeah, that was where most of the F words were in the book and in the movie. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think he was a, a, a bit interested in the fact that they, withheld that and what i think is interesting about that concern about their focus on the mission is that they really weren't doing anything they're just killing time on the hermes well that that's the way they're that's the way they portrayed it but uh you know interstellar travel is still a very uh, not interstellar travel interplanetary travel is still a very dangerous thing it is computer pretty much computer driven i mean you you plug the course and they even made a point of saying that when they had to adjust the course that computer technicians in houston knew it instantly as soon as they made adjustments to their course and started you know hermes hey you got to fix this you know um the the fact Mm. that pretty much all they're doing is going home (laughs) at this point um they didn't want them to lose focus on the fact that they were going home they didn't want them trying to turn around or do anything like that yeah and and that was exactly what they did when they found out that there was a way they could go back that's exactly what they did without hesitation they went against orders to do that that was a mutiny and uh the quote that i played there shows that nasa decided to make it not look like a mutiny by saying that they had made the decision (laughs) to reroute the hermes to mars um this was a smart move because you didn't want the rest of the world realizing that you had a, a pretty sure way of going back to get him and you didn't want to do it. Yeah. You, know, you, you made the crew force your hand and they weren't going to tell the crew. It was kind of a, they kind of snuck the message to them. So. Yeah. It's, it, it was in the movie. Was it uh, in the book? It was hidden mm-hmm. in and a it was picture, in the movie wasn't too. it? Mm-hmm. Both. It was hidden as a picture in a movie, but I thought it was hidden in a picture no, it in the was, book. No, uh, as in coded in the picture. Uh, no, I think it was it. It was the identical delivery in both. Uh, it was just uh, was I think it? described okay. slightly differently, but it was it was presented. It was basically I understand exactly what they did. They basically took a ASCII file and put a .jpg extension on it. So anybody looking at it without opening the file would think it was a JPEG. But when you went to open the file, anything that could read a JPEG yeah. would go, hey, wait a minute, this isn't a JPEG. And so all, basically all she had to do was change the extension to text to read what was actually in the file, and it was an ASCII 2 file. So mm-hmm. that's what they did. It basically meant nobody actually opened the JPEG <laughs> before they sent it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was um, that was an interesting way that they, they snuck that in there. And... As I mentioned before, the 33, I keep, there really are some parallels between the 33 and the Martian. Yeah. And um, 
the mining company definitely did back out, but it was in the end the government that took over, and it was all because in in the movie anyway. I don't know in true life whether it was indeed the minister of mining that really stuck his neck out um, to make it happen, and and I think that in this instance, I think it was the crew that stuck their neck out um, to to make sure that mm-hmm. that Mark was, um, and what's interesting about the thirty three is is that they went to a great deal of expense and um, did a great deal just to bring closure because at the time they put all of those my, the, the original drills down um uh, they didn't know whether they were alive or not and and so there was a difference there in that they put a lot they threw a lot of expense at just proving whether or not they were dead and um yeah. and then when it turned out they were alive they had to throw an additional amount of expense in trying to keep them alive and to get them out yeah, there's no way once they uh, once they identified them as being alive that they could have could just backed out at that point. Yeah, let it mm-hmm. sit there. Yeah, <laughs> or let <laughs> well, let it die. What was really fascinating to me when I was thinking about this is the politics of the rescue. Um, is there's there's a really good um, parallel to Christian living in this, and that um, mm. <laughs> and I'm actually going to get teary because Christ. Um, paid the ultimate sacrifice for us to rescue us. And when mm. we think about, if if we put it in the perspective that the lost in this world, the unsaved people in this world are people like Mark Watney on a the deserted planet or 33 men buried alive in a gold mine, how much effort, how much personal cost, how much are we willing to sacrifice to reach those people? If we put it in that perspective, that they're lost, they're being lost, that they're being unsaved is is that life threatening? Because it is. It's a, it's an eternity apart from God. And yep. how much are we as Christians in our comfortable lives willing to sacrifice? What cost are we willing to go to in order to reach those people for Christ? We should be willing to give it all up. We should be willing to, but do we do do that? Are we really willing to mm. do that? Are we willing to put our reputations, um, the way people see us? I mean, I'm thinking even our witness on Facebook. Um, it's it's difficult <laughs> sometimes when we have to speak out on situations because we care about people's souls and we not necessarily their mm-hmm. comfort in this world, but their souls. We're talking about their souls, their eternal existence. How much are we willing to... Um, sacrifice our reputations and the way people view us and everything else i mean it's it's being flung around like crazy these days that christians are bigots and it's really hurtful to be called a bigot but yes (laughs) it gets it gets really really under under your your skin. skin but at the same time is that cost too high to represent christ even when people call you a bigot um i don't think it i mean that's that's a decision each of us has to make, um, but I think that uh, the um, the example we have from Scripture of the apostles who were really quite honestly having been witnesses to what happened to Christ, um, they gave it all. I think only one of them, only one of the twelve, did not die a martyr's death. John, right? John, right? Yeah, and that should really impact us to remind remember looking at a movie like this or at at the 33 how much cost went into and i think uh, i had posted on our facebook page uh, those of you who are on like us on facebook go make like us on facebook i posted the interesting article that somebody had had calculated out how much money it would have cost to rescue uh, matt damon from mars along with all of the other movies that he's been rescued in. <laughs> yeah. um, he likes to get himself in situations where he needs to be rescued. And it's a tremendous amount of money. It's it's in the billions. It's it's It just blows your mind how much money it costs to rescue uh, his character from Mars. Um, but that's just money. And money is temporal. And souls are eternal. And so I just think that I, I wanted to make that parallel because it's an important one yeah it is 
It is, and I don't think we, uh, I don't think we put enough uh, mm-hmm. emphasis on being willing to sacrifice our image mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to try and put that pebble in people's shoes. Uh, you know that pebble that that uh, makes them wonder what's this God stuff about? Yeah, yeah, and I, I admit that as Christians, we have to find a way to be loving. But at the same time, I think the way we define love right now is a lot different from the way society defines love. And, That's I, for sure. and I think we need to be committed to the definition of that God is love and, and stick firmly with that and not compromise um, what Christ has told us is wrong and what Christ has told us is right uh, in order to appear loving by the society's definition of love and it can cost us a lot and it probably will cost us a lot in in the direction our culture is going these days but i i don't think we should be afraid to stand up for it because god um god has told us to and regardless of the consequences love and tolerance are not the same thing and love and acceptance are not the same thing either um, that's yeah. the that's the one that has really impacted me recently um, with the stuff that's going on in the news recently is that people think that love just means you pat them on the back and say, we accept you for who you are. And if that's, if that's the way, the way you, you feel. feel. And the problem is, is try doing that with an alcoholic. Are you going to go into a bar and buy an alcoholic drinks because that's what he is? And that's, you don't. Sometimes love intervenes. Sometimes love tries to step in front of a car that is about to go over the cliff to stop it. <laughs> you know, you you get in the way. <laughs> you speak out. But anyway, we won't go too deeply into that. Um, it, it's something that I know is on Tim's heart as well as mine. But it, um, we yeah. we definitely want to portray Christ. Uh, as the loving God that he is, but love does not always mean acceptance and tolerance. So what are you willing to do to bring a soul into the kingdom? (laughs) And I'm not asking you to get an answer. I'm just saying rhetorically, what would you do? Yeah, it's, you know, it's uh, in our uh, monthly, we have a men's breakfast at, uh, at church where we meet once a month and uh uh sit and have biscuits and gravy and and pancakes and we've been going through uh today was or yesterday rather was our uh our last session on uh tactics by um stand to reason at the STR mm-hmm. Greg Kokel um and uh he he makes a point in uh in both the video presentation and the book um, that you have to remember that we most often are not going to see the result of our labor. Um, it's we may be we may be the planters, but we may not be the mm-hmm. harvester. Um, so um, even if we are making a fool of ourselves. Um, uh, and it's easy to do, particularly on on Facebook. And uh, you know, I'm thinking of uh, the the whole issue that uh, that I've got going on on Facebook mm-hmm. right now. Um, we we have to stay true to uh, what we're called. We have mm-hmm. to stay true to the truth, and. Um, even if it means looking like a fool in right. the world's eyes, you know, stand your ground. We're strangers, <laughs> exceedingly strange land yeah, now. Yeah, stranger every day. <laughs> yes. Well, that's heavy stuff. So let's talk about some lighthearted stuff for a little while. Let's end our podcast <laughs> on a more positive note, which that is a positive note, but it's a heavy note. So we want to we want to go a little... Uh, a little more humorous here at the end. Go back to one of those nods yes, to us geeks. Yes, yes. Um, we're both, of course, Lord of the Rings fans, and there's a huge, huge nod to Lord of the Rings in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Let's I play the quote. It. What the hell is Project Elrond? 
I had to make something up. Yeah, but Elrond? Because it's a secret meeting. How do you know that? Why does Elrond mean secret meeting? The Council of Elrond is from Lord of the Rings. It's the meeting where they decide to destroy the one man. We're going to call something Project Elrond. I would like my code name to be Glorfindel. I hate every one of you. All right. So that is absolutely hilarious that Elrond means a secret meeting. (laughs) It's an inside joke that everybody was in except for the publicist. Now, why is it they made the publicist the one that doesn't know anything about Lord of the Rings? You know, I I think that's because uh, I think it goes back to the stereotype of the geek (laughs) And the prom queen. <laughs> and Annie's the prom queen and all of NASA is a geek. Yeah. And th- this this entire thing was lifted straight out of the book. The fact that the Weir puts it in here is, is spectacular. Yeah. There was actually quite a bit of geek stuff in the movie, but that one was the one that really stuck out. And it's just funny. I just love the humor in it. And the, the fact that... that Somebody could not get the joke because they didn't know who El- Elrond was. I, I thought that just putting that in um, just lifted. I mean, it was a very uh, hard conversation that they were having and that they were able to have that sense of humor about it is, you know, just made it a little easier to deal with what they were talking about. And, you know, that had to be a nod to the the fact that uh, Teddy uh uh, no, no. What was uh, Sean Bean's character's name? Yeah, we haven't even talked about him, have we? Yeah. <laughs> it's very important. Mitch. Uh, he... Mitch was the mission commander. Mitch, yes. Yeah. And uh, Sean Bean is one of the one of the actors who was also Lord of the, in the Rings. The Lord of the Rings. It's, uh, throughout uh, both viewings of the movie, I couldn't help but to, uh, to make jokes about, uh, it, is this... At what point does Sean Bean die in this movie? <laughs> so yeah, it's um, that that little nod to pop culture makes it feel more real. I think that that's maybe why he threw those kind of things in there. Um, was that you know to to keep it feeling like this is this is this could happen. These are real people that watch the Lord of the Rings and and have you know watch sci fi and they get involved in that kind of stuff. And yeah. And then the other thing that I thought was really hilarious was Mark Watney as a space pirate. <laughs> the internet, the whole international uh-huh. law. Yeah, thing. that that was really fun. Um, but what was that? What made that scene even more humorous? And if you weren't paying attention, because it was all visual, was he almost walked out without his helmet? <laughs> <laughs> And and it just I mean he was he was getting so involved in his whole space piracy thing that that he just and he was he was saying goodbye to the hab because he was leaving it for the very last time and he nearly walks out without his helmet and I I don't know why that struck me as so funny but I was just dying laughing over that <laughs> oh yeah I need that don't I, I know, yeah I don't don't want to go through the airlock and without it. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to uh, talk about? No, it's you know what the, of all the movies that uh, that we've looked at together. I think um, I want to say that Martian is probably in my top <laughs> five uh, as far as movies I would encourage people to uh, to go mm-hmm. see. Um, Thirty three is up there. Risen mm-hmm. is definitely up there. Uh, but Martian is is, it is good, good story. story. It is well presented, except for the language. Well, <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. Uh, you know really honestly that was the only thing I had against the movie was the language. I mean, it, and I understand they had to do that because it made it more real. I mean, from a certain extent, they almost. I mean, and it was that way in the book. That was the way he wrote the character. I, I what can you say? But I know that there were a lot of people that would be against watching this movie because of the extent of the language in it. Yeah. And uh, you know what? I can, mm-hmm. I can appreciate that. And if it, if it's something that is really going to ruin the experience for them, then I would encourage right. them not right. to. Um, however, uh, if it's something that you can, you know, look, look the other way, turn, turn your ears <laughs> off and ignore. This is a, <laughs> this is a really, well done, uh, totally 
uh, immersive movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I, I wish I could go back and watch it on IMAX. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. That would be a definitely. Yeah. And, and th- the fact that I didn't see it in the theater, I almost kicked myself for it now because this was one of those movies that you want that that big screen experience. And yeah, in, yeah, and you I, really do. I missed out on that because it was. I just didn't think it was that important to see in the theater, and and boy, was I wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now there were um just really quick because I was breezing through my notes really quick to see if there's anything else that stood out. What did you think about the section where he's um leaving? He's getting he's boarding the, the Mav for the last time. And he somewhere or another he he gets out of his his suit and he cleans up. He shaves and he and he cleans up and he gets into the suit. Yeah. I was trying to figure out where that happened because he's taken all of the life support out of the math. So where is he cleaning it? That's and a good question. That bugged me when I watched the movie the first time. And then when I watched it the second time, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Cause he took every, he stripped that map down to nothing. Well, he had to have, he had to have some of the living facilities. I mean, it, it even the, it, he had to have the ability to evacuate his bowels for Pete's sake. It's not like he could have just dropped trowel on the Martian well, surface. He, he was li- so he was living he must in, have... in the rover. I mean, for the trip. So how did he do it? I don't. Yeah, I, I just. And if, if somebody, if one of our viewers understands how that works, I it it bothered me because. They they specifically made this met the comment that they were having him strip the life support out of the map and it was open to the air so there was no, I mean he pulled all the windows out and he took I mean even the airlock was opening to nothing so um, he had to wear a suit the whole time so I don't know where he got out of one suit and into the other that made no sense to me oh and in the book he talks about that too mm-hmm. okay yeah yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know, I don't know how he did that. And at, that kind of bugged me. And then the other thing that I thought was very weird was that they showed, um, when they were doing the rescue, they showed all of these people congregating all over the world in open squares to watch these big screens to, to be, stay in touch with what was going on. And I'm just wondering, do they live in the same society I am where everybody carries around their little mobile devices and... (laughs) And I mean, it's not like we have to watch it streaming. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why everybody was congregating in open squares to watch. It just—I I mean, nowadays when news events happens, everybody is usually watching it on their phone or they're home watching it on their TV. I mean, everything is live and covered yeah. live and streamed live. And why would people have to congregate in big open squares? But. I just thought that was kind of yeah. funny. It, I know that they did it to show that there was global interest in what was happening. Um, but I think global interest in what's happening has, looks different these days than it would have looked 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. Because people didn't. But it, you know, it looked good on picture on screen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even when 9-11 happened, which was a horrible tragedy, I don't think people were congregating in squares. They were huddling around their tvs <laughs> yeah so i don't know that that just well it's i mean look back at the first mm-hmm. moon landing um even that was uh you know people sitting in the living room in front of their uh right. massive 12 massive. inch screens massive. um and then even with the 33 which was a real event most people if you you know put it in context those were those miners you know that were trapped most of them remember news wise when that happened because it was such a big news event but there weren't people congregating in open squares you know waiting with bated breath to see whether they got all 33 of them out yeah you know uh it's i was curious as to if that wasn't the same in the book and uh, actually chapter 26 starts with everywhere on earth they gathered in uh trafalgar Mm -hmm. square and tiananmen square and times square they watched (laughs) on giant screens in offices they huddled around computer monitors and bars they sat they stared silently at TV at a, the TV in the corner in homes. They sat breathlessly on their couches, their eyes glued to the story mm-hmm. playing out. I think that was just his way of saying the whole world was interested. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you're right. I guess uh, it probably wouldn't 
no. happen that way anymore. No, well, we're, well we're, we have very busy lives. We never truly stop. Even when, uh, well, I, I will take that back. Where I worked uh, during 9-11, we did stop. Um, we pretty much stopped everything that day. I was yeah. I, I was I was, was, day, I was so. at work, and we pretty much stopped and and had a big prayer meeting. Um, but it was uh, most of the other things that I can think of that were big news events. Um, it was business as usual. I mean, people obviously were paying attention, but we didn't stop our work day. We didn't stop doing what we were doing. We were just you know listening with an ear, you know. Well, it's you and I, we're about the same age, so you would have been mm-hmm. in school yes. for Challenger as well. Um, how did your school handle uh, the Challenger They disaster? brought TVs in all the classrooms. I was at a Christian school, and and the principal mm. went scavenging to find TVs for all the classrooms. And Yeah. it's. Uh, I was in public school, but mm-hmm. uh, it was the same thing. Um, we had... Uh, we had everybody come to the uh, the mm-hmm. gymnasium, and they set up like five TVs uh, with uh, loudspeakers. Uh, but they suspended normal classes for the mm-hmm. day and everything. Um, it was that it mm-hmm. was that same way. Yeah, I can think of a, a few situations uh, through my lifetime where they've been life stopping events. Um, uh, the other one was the Oklahoma City bombing. I remember where where I was when that happened, and I was I was actually home oh. uh, between classes and college. I think if I remember right. I was oddly detached for mm. that one because I was in Germany. Um, it you know for me it happened in the middle of the night and I didn't find out about it until yeah. the next day. Um, but yeah, I mean tragedies like that do tend to ke- get people's notice, but whether or not they would suspend all activity i i don't know i i in in today's culture there's some things that granted maybe schools would have stopped to watch um and certain you know individuals who were not at work or whatever might have stopped to watch but i don't know that it would Mm -hmm. have been a situation where the world stopped in anticipation you know well you know it's uh we started this uh this pair of of episodes off by talking about how uh, well mm-hmm. Andy Weir did right. the story, you know, and uh, I think that's what yeah. we should just write this off to. I think we should write it off to uh, part of the presentation, like you said, to show right. how it was on right. everybody's minds. Um, and uh, I'm I'm willing <laughs> yeah. I'm willing to go yeah. there too. I am. It's it's. Uh, it really feeds into the atmosphere of the rescue and it, it feeds up the tension and and uh, it really mm-hmm. serves a great purpose. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it makes for a great yeah. story. Well, we've definitely enjoyed talking about The Martian. We've done two episodes on it now and I'm sure we've missed something that could have been talked about. So if <laughs> – yeah, we could easily, do five episodes easily. and still miss something. I'm just getting through my notes. How many things that I, I made note of when when I watched the you know done a second pass on the movie, and there's so much in here that we could talk about. So, for our viewers, we want you to chime in. We want to know what you thought about uh, the movie The Martian. Um, assuming you've watched it, if you've sat through um, two over hour, probably an hour round, an hour long episodes. Um, so please do come and comment on our show notes, share your insights. Um, the show notes are, are you just watching.com slash 60? And you can also comment on Facebook, start a conversation there. We are, uh, just look for, are you just watching on Facebook? We're there and we're active. Um, you can also call and leave us a voicemail on 903-231-2221 or email us at feedback at are you just watching.com. Um, we welcome audio files. We'd still like to do a feedback episode if somebody would want to give us feedback. And please don't forget, we are trying to raise a income level for uh, Are You Just Watching so that we can keep bringing you these episodes. So if you have not already gone to Patreon and pledged us uh, just minuscule, it doesn't have to be a lot, just a little bit, like a dollar or two a month. Um, to support this podcast so that we can continue to do what we're doing, we would highly appreciate it. And that is, absolutely. Um, just, so please um, do visit Patreon um, and and consider uh, becoming a supporter. Um, 
we thank you. We thank our supporters so much, those that have um, given us. But we currently only have three monthly supporters, and we would like to see more of them. So please, <laughs> please help us out. Um, you could follow me at on Twitter at E. Franklin. I am at Rencheple, R-E-N-C-H-E-P-L-E. And Tim tweets a lot more than I do, so... Uh, <laughs> You could probably follow That's him. That's scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you actually have a presence on Twitter. I just pretty much tweet when we get an episode out. So um, do do uh, check us out, though, if you want to. Yeah. Um, interact with us. Yeah. Interact with us. And, and do, as, as I mentioned before, subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Um, we do appreciate reviews. Uh, help other people find us when you when you post a review on iTunes it increases our popularity so that we show up when people do searches and so those iTunes, those reviews are very 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 valuable so um, thank you to those who have reviewed us and we hope to see more reviews so thank you I'm Eve Franklin I'm Tim Martin and thank you so much for listening And don't just watch. Are You Just Watching is a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. Our opening vocal talent was thanks to Mariah. The theme song is used courtesy of Answers in Genesis. For more great podcasts like this one, visit the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. That's noodle.mx. Noodle.mx.